This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On this episode, we welcome back to B-Town the commissioner of the Rhode Island Department of Education, Angelica Infante Green. All right, obviously, plenty to discuss with the commissioner today. And uh, coming up on Tuesday of next week, we're going to have the executive director of the National Education Association of Rhode Island chapter, Bob Walshon. So we'll have a variety of voices here discussing education. Now we're a couple of weeks into back to school in Rhode Island, starting to get some numbers on COVID tests, results, and so forth. And it's interesting here in the episode, you'll well, you'll hear it, but the commissioner revealing that there's actually more positive COVID tests coming out of students who are at home learning versus in school. So I don't know where that's coming from. Plenty going on in this department, and uh, we get to pretty much all of it with the commissioner in this fast-paced episode here on B-Town. By the way, great to hear from all of you out there. You can send me an email anytime. It's bill, B-I-L-L, at ripodcast.com or tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew. If you'd like to support the independent journalism, opinion, analysis, and entertainment that B-Town has become known for, a good way to do so is to become a B-Town insider. Not only will you receive exclusive monthly content, you'll also be sustaining this program. Head to patreon.com slash Town to find out how you can become an insider. Okay, without further ado, let's get right to it. With the Rhode Island Department of Education Commissioner, you hear her every Wednesday at the governor's press briefings, and she's become pretty much a household name throughout the state, Angelica Infante Green. So how's it been on your end? I mean, I saw you on the first day of school for Providence, and look, it's, it is what it is, right? I guess there's, we're, we're going back to school in a pandemic. So it's about mitigation. It's about control. Um, there's no magic wand, unfortunately, but from your perspective right now, what, where do we stand? Are you confident that we're in a good place? I feel good about the openings we've had. Um, I can tell you, I just came from a school right now. I just came from central falls from Diasis and, um, I was able to see, um, the kids, how they had um, spaced them out, what the teachers are doing. They're doing kind of a hybrid model. So I think we've been really successful. I think um, the superintendents, principals, teachers have worked really hard. Once they're in the building, they're excited to be there, right? I think that that's, you know, we've had some cases, um, but very minimal. And I think that it's, you know, I think it's the new, it's the new way we're going to have to operate. We're going to look at things a little differently. I just watched these kindergartners coming out of the bathroom and getting um, hand sanitizer pumped under hands and standing on these green circles on the floor. It's just different. Everything is going to be different for all of us. One of the things that we hear a lot, at least I've been hearing a lot from, from people who have either kids inside a school system or teachers is a concern that a lot of the the elements of infrastructure that are in place right now, so open windows or doing as much outdoors as possible, isn't sustainable into the winter. And we've obviously had a, a bit of a chilly start to oh. September here. I guess not start, but here in the middle of September. So is that a concern of yours, that there's going to have to be some shifts towards indoors and how that may play into mitigating the virus? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a concern. It's about planning, right? Thinking about that right now. So we know that if we have, there, there are multiple solutions. We were actually talking about this yesterday. If there's a HEPA filter, then we're good, right? That's the, the gold star. But in, in some places they were saying we could turn up the heat and keep the, the fans going. 
So we're, we're coming up with different ideas of how to do it um, because it is about mitigating and being creative and making the space also comfortable. So I think it's all those things, but we are thinking about it because it is coming a little quicker than we um, hoped. It's like my favorite way to drive around, blast the heat and have the windows open. It's a perfect combination, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we have to figure it out. It, it'll all depend on each building, each classroom. And, and we're looking into that already because we do have to plan. With respect to virtual learning, distance learning, a few weeks ago, I had some students on from a few different schools who were discussing what kind of worked for them and what didn't work for them when it came to distance learning. And Mm -hmm. I was actually surprised by a number of the kids really were enthusiastic about distance learning because they, depending on their situation, it may have expanded their, I guess, the method that they learn, whether it's being outdoors in, in more of an ex- exploration manner from a science perspective or more of a, I guess, an individual approach to getting assignments done. So I guess, what has your feedback been from students and teachers about this hybrid model and how to make distance learning not necessarily, you know, a, a hard second place to in-person yeah. learning when it comes to the school year? So we, um, it's mixed, to be honest with you, some students had a great experience, really enjoyed the freedom of being able to kind of work around a different schedule. Um, other kids need a little more guidance and support and found it difficult. So I think it, it, it depends on the students. But what we want to do is make sure that we learn from this. So what are we going to keep when this pandemic is over? What part of this are we going to make part, um, part of our education system as we move forward? So we have a lot of kids that have to work, for example, would they benefit from some of their classes being virtual so that they have a little flexibility? So absolutely, these are things that we are going to see what makes sense to keep and how do we plan differently. But also, where have been the missteps and what do we need to strengthen? We know that for the little kids, it's a very different experience. Do you sense that from from school nurses' perspective that um, as far as in-person learning right now, the systems for assessing a person who may be, whether it's a teacher, staff member, student, that sort of boots on the ground assessment of whether or not somebody may be symptomatic or a carrier of, of COVID. Do you feel like that infrastructure is in, in a good place? Because obviously we've got the testing sites. We, we know the yeah. basics don't come to school if you have the red face on the app, all that. But just as far as somebody's in school, they feel sick. Is that assessment process in place? Yes. So interesting that you asked that. So um, we had a case in a school and um, the nurse was the one who the school nurse sent the person to get tested and it was a positive. It was an adult, um, but she was able to say, okay, you need to go get tested. And um, it showed us how well it worked and it all happened within maybe three hours. So the person went into this nurse got tested, got the results back. We were able to quarantine everybody within a few hours. So it, it worked well. I think the, the part that, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around all of this, but the structures in place have worked at this point. They, from what we've seen from the week and two days that we've been open. What about school sports? There's, you know, obviously football's canceled, but, um, I was involved in sports here in Rhode Island. I, I did play in the interscholastic league when I went to school, but I was a referee for forever in soccer and even basketball. 
And I've heard concerns from, from referees who have said, hey, look, you know, this is, there's no real way to keep social distancing in a soccer game. There's, but then the trade-off is, and we've heard the governor say a few times, um, and I think even you, that, look, we need to have some version of, um, and in fact, the governor said it may be incredibly important for kids to have sports right now, to have that interaction. How do you sort of square that situation? No, that's a tough question because emotionally for kids, I think it's really important, especially coming out of this um, virtual world that we just exited, um, completely virtual. It's important for kids, but it really is hard. Like one of the things that I recommend is that um, they stay within their pod, try to keep it as, um, as close knit as possible because it is very hard. You know, kids are running and they bump into each other. And, you know, I think it's something that we have to look at very closely. So we're looking at what are the sports that we can do? You know, what are the things that we can do safely? Running, is there cross country? Like what what are the things that we can do that the kids still feel the energy, get to be outside, um, get to, you know, compete safely? So there are some sports that are easier to um, mitigate than others. So that's that's what I recommend as we start moving forward. There's been a lot of finger pointing in the media, and you've got, in, particularly in Providence, where the mm-hmm. teachers' union has called press conferences, and then a few hours later, you know, the, the superintendent may say, "Well, wait a minute, I, the opposite is happening in a number of different situations." But at the end of the day, I think people just want hard data. So. With respect to a portal where parents, anybody can look and say, hey, how many kids, how many staff members, um, whatever it may be, have tested positive or have symptoms in a school? What are those hard numbers? How are you going to present that to, from a communications end, present that to the public? It's just going to be very factual, right? This is what's happening. This is how many people have been quarantined. And this is the reason why, right? Um, What's interesting for us is that any cases that we've had, with the exception of one, have all been adults, right? And we know that this is preventable. I think there's a lot of education that still needs to happen, and we need, we need to continue the conversation. But it is about education. It is about transparency. We've tried to be transparent. Um, I think that it becomes difficult if you have an agenda you want to drive home, then you're going to use data however you want to use it. I can't um, change that. I have promised transparency, and that's what we're going to do. I mean, it, it is our reality. I will tell you that most of our student cases are kids on virtual that are, are home and some homeschooled kids. So that's where our cases have been for the students. So I think we just have to be very open so that we continue to learn and we can protect each other because this is about being a community. Discover over 200 episodes of Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast, on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your pods, or head over to our website, ripodcast.com. A group of elected officials and community leaders spoke outside of the State House, calling for what they describe as a justice budget surrounding economics, criminal justice, and housing, among them State Senator-elect Tiara Mack. This money is here in our state now. We need to stop criminalizing uh, state-produced poverty. We need to reinvest in families, their health, their education, and training. Representative John Lombardi was among those who spoke, he calling for the General Assembly to resume session immediately via Zoom. At the State House, Bill Bartholomew for B-Town News.
Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza was joined by a panel of community leaders in announcing the first phase of the truth-telling, reconciliation, and reparations project his office initiated. But here in Providence, we're, le- we're leading the way and truly offering up a model that as we continue to move forward and show success, can be a model for the rest of the country to follow on how to confront the issue of racism and anti-blackness. The mayor wouldn't commit to what the specifics of reparations may look like, but did say he is taking concrete recommendations from the community. In Providence, Bill Bartholomew for B-Town News. When you assess things from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, if you're comparing certain schools in Providence to a brand new school in North Providence or Barrington, there's obviously going to be things that COVID aside are are difficult to, for some people to swallow or, you know, just in general, it's going to be difficult to make that comparison. So how are you and, and the Department of Education assessing something that is a problem in the context of COVID versus the, just a general problem and, and then also presenting that to the public? So I think that that's that's an awesome question because I've been thinking a, a lot about that when we've been having these conversations about the buildings. Um, and the buildings are old. Nobody is denying that. Um, but does that mean that the air isn't flowing the way that it's supposed to? No, it doesn't mean that. We do know the buildings are old. I think we, we can't conflate things. And I, I think we've been doing that. Um, and we need to stop doing that because, you know, um, cleanliness is the highest it's been, let's say, in Providence. Right? I went to one of the oldest buildings and the floor was shining. So I think it's it's... It's different than, you know, you're going to have one situation in Barrington, you're going to have a different one in a different place, but we have to talk about that context and how is this um, being mitigated within that context and not conflate the two because, you know, having a tile not being in place is very different than not having the air moving the way it's supposed to. So those are two different things and we need to make sure that we're having the right conversation. There's a lot made about the walkthrough versus inspection. That's something that was at one, in the one hand, it was a talking point. At the other hand, it was sort of a a realistic way of assessing things. I talked to some of the people off record who were doing these walkthroughs and they said, look, I'm not qualified to break down if something, a HEPA filter is, or or uh, the the, the grade 13 filtration versus whatever it may be. But as far as right now and moving forward in the school year, what kind of oversight are you providing that zeroes in on expertise from, from an, an engineering, a scientific perspective, and how routine will those walkthroughs be? Well, I think the walkthroughs were meant to, so th- there's clear mitigation. If you don't have a Merck 13, I know way too much about this than I have, <laughs> but, you know, um, that's not something that my office does, right? That has been um, all the agencies. We don't, that's not something that I have expertise in. Um, So I think it's, if you don't have this, but you do have a box fan, you're okay. And if you don't have a box fan, then you have to have a filter. Some things are just black and white, right? And I think that we have that. And we have um, had experts come in and train the people that are going out what to look for. That doesn't make them experts, but it but it is very clear what needs to be there. So if you don't have one thing, you have another. It there there is no um, it, it isn't as complicated as we have made it. 
Um, The airflow is the most important part. People are talking about air quality. It's not air quality, it's the airflow. And I think those are the conversations that we need to have. And I think at the end of the day, we need to remember that this is all preventable, right? We know what to do to prevent it. We didn't know that a few months ago, but we know that now. What's it been like for you now that you've, over the last month and change, become a fixture of these Wednesday press briefings? What's that like backstage at the vets before you walk out onto the stage to to address the state? Because that's fairly unprecedented as far as becoming a household name. Obviously, Dr. Alexander Scott and, of course, the governor, and to a certain extent, um, Director Smiley and and, uh, mm-hmm. and others have been have been a part of this as well. Um, but what's that like for you? I mean, that that sort of changes your role. You've always had a public voice and and so forth, but now it's almost like, all right, I've got to walk out there and calm the nerves in a way that's genuine on a weekly basis. Yeah, yeah. I I have to say that um, it's stressful, right? Because I think people are relying on you to calm the nerves, to be transparent, to be open. I hope that I am those things because that's, I, I, I try to bring in what is happening and be very factual about it, but also bring in the reality, the emotions around it. I get that this is very stressful. I get it. You know, I've been quarantined myself. I've taken the test three times. I I know how stressful it is. Um, But all we can do is be honest about where we are what we're doing and move forward. I think that's, that's hard, but I will tell you what's been pretty amazing has been the response that we've gotten from little girls throughout the state. I have this card that I walk around with that I wish I had it out. It's, it's in my pocketbook where it's Wonder Woman and the mother talks about how her daughter looks at the press conference and has made things very different for her. Um, so I think it's it's a different way of functioning, um, but it's really being transparent about what we're doing and and also having people understand, like there's a lot of, commissioner, don't close down the school. I don't close down schools. I do education. <laughs> so there's a little bit of confusion, um, but what is amazing is that we do work as a team. So I feel pretty lucky. I talk to other people in other states where they don't have that team approach. And um, what I've learned about Rhode Island is that uh, it's hard for us to realize that we can be leading in certain things. And I think in the whole COVID pandemic, we have been. It still doesn't feel good because we're still in a pandemic. But I have to tell you that um, Dr. Alexander and I, on the phone every night, our teams are meeting every night. And that's a different way to lead than in other states. It's also interesting because some people have sort of shot down the importance of, I guess, other talkers, if you will, in this market. I've heard them kind of say, well, it doesn't matter that it's three women up there or, you know, three moms and so on and so forth. And they've tried to, to squash that as, as something nonsensical. And I, I do in a, in a way it is, you know, you can, you can say it's superficial, but at the end of the day, it's unique and it is important. And I do think there's you'd be dishonest to say that it doesn't impact the viewer and the person receiving the information to have three women up there who are experts delivering that information. I mean, do you feel that? Do you get that feedback? 
I do. I do. And um, it's not to say that men are not as important or don't care as much, because I have to tell you, I say this all the time. I can't do what I do if it weren't for my husband. I have to be totally honest. I am in the office till nine, 10 o'clock sometimes in the evening. And he puts my kids to sleep. I can't do that if he were an integral part of what my household is. But I have to tell you that it is different. I think we have to acknowledge that you don't see in um, most states three women leading and having these conversations. Um, and I think what's interesting about it, it also, and I, <laughs> I brought this to the attention of some people, I love wearing dresses, right? When you come into this world, you're not supposed to wear dresses, right? Because you have to look a certain way. But I think that we're leading in this state the way that we want to lead, which is being a mother. When you're a mother, you, you think about things, not saying that when you're a father, you don't, but when you're a mother, you think about things. Would I put my child in that situation? Would, I, would, would this be okay for my kid? And those are the things that you think about. And you stay up at night. You stay up thinking about those decisions. It's not just a number. It's somebody's child. So we think about those things. And, um, and we have those conversations behind closed doors, which I think is unique. Last couple of minutes here. Do you think, by and large, the media in Rhode Island has done a good job? And I know I've been at these press conferences, so it's sort of like not entirely removed from me. But by and large, do you think they've done a good job of, of covering what's happening right now in Rhode Island broadly, but particularly with back to school? Somebody said the other day that the, the, the press corps is lame. Somebody who's, who, who's broadcast, you know, that they're not doing a good job digging into the questions. Other people have said, oh, the, there's mansplaining going on and so on and so forth. But how do you, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> how do you assess that? Well, I don't, I don't think that, right? I, you know, when I walk on stage, I, you know, the first thing I do is look to see who's in the audience, right? Um, certain reporters care about certain parts of the pandemic. But I think that the questions are genuine. The questions are real. I think people are asking things that they're hearing. They want more explanation. They want more detail. I don't think that at all. Um, you know, I don't know who's saying these things or why, but I find that it is very easy to tear people down when you're not actually doing the work, right? So when you're not reporting it, it's, it's, it's easy to be judgmental. <laughs> um, but when you're there and you're coming up with the questions and you're engaging, it's a different, it's different, right? So I, I always take things from where they're coming, you know, what's the goal, what is their purpose? And um, one of the things that I hope that we continue to do is build each other up. We're always in this silent competition against Massachusetts, but you know, Massachusetts isn't bad mouthing Massachusetts. Rhode Island is very judgmental of Rhode Island. And I think that we need to change that rhetoric. We, you know, I think our, our, our media is doing a great job, right? They get things front and center, they're there. Um, the first day I was in, in a school, everybody was there asking the questions, wanting to know more, wanting to be where the action is. I think that's important. And I think we need to give credit where credit is due. Last question. What would you like to see other than, again, the magic wand or, you know, this completely proven vaccine, whatever it is, what would you like to see? How would you like to see this school year go with that sort of realistic approach? You know, I asked the governor a couple of weeks ago, do you genuinely believe you'll walk out on stage and say, all right, we've, we've defeated COVID here in Rhode Island. 
And she said, well, maybe this time next year. So, you know, assuming that we're roughly 11 months away from what the governor believes is maybe a realistic end to this pandemic, at least here in Rhode Island, where would you like to see this go? Because we've got a long way to June. Yeah, I would like to see our kids being excited about getting up and going to school. I would like to see our teachers not be worried about things, that they feel secure, safe and secure. I'd like to see that the systems that we've put in place actually work, right? That we're mitigating and we're moving things very quickly and we have very few cases related to schools and that our kids are learning and not only learning, but surpassing our expectations. I think that is my greatest hope for us. I mean, I came here to really work on education and I have not lost that focus, right? How do we get better? How do we bring in more resources? How do we support the work that needs to happen? 11 months from now, I want to be able to say, you know, we lived through a pandemic and we did the best job than anyone else in the nation. I'm extremely competitive and I want to be able to say that because that means that we work together as a state to make this happen for all our kids and all our educators. Commissioner, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And guess what? I like seeing you when you're there. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Why not follow us on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast for breaking news and other daily content?